Well, we're continuing our series in the Gospel according to John. And uh, you may be wondering why I'm sharing this from home. Well, on Sunday we had some technical issues, so it wasn't recorded properly. So that's why it's happening from home this week. Now, you may remember that last week we looked at the first half of John chapter 2, which was the account of Jesus's first miracle when he turned the water into wine in the town of Cana in Galilee. Well, this week we're going to look at the second half of that chapter, which is the cleansing of the temple. And as you can see, I've called this house cleaning. So we're going to start at verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now, before we share about that, it's important to note that John makes a point that this happened around the time of the Passover. Now, there's four reasons why he actually said that. And I'm going to share three of those with you now and the, the fourth one, which is the main one later on. But first of all, he calls it, he takes this opportunity to call this Passover the Feast of the Jews, not the Feasts of the Lord. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were referred to as the Feasts of the Lord because he appointed them. But of course, when we look at the purpose of the Feasts, they pointed forward to Jesus. They were just types, just shadows, uh, pointing forward to Jesus. Well, Jesus has come now, so they have fulfilled their role. The problem is that the Jews got stuck there in their religion. They wanted to stay in the shadows and in the type. So you can see there on, on the um, PowerPoint that there's two or three uh, references where John uses that phrase over and over again. He's making a point of the fact that this is where the Jews were, but Jesus has come to bring the new wine of the new covenant. Now, the second reason why he calls it, um, uh, he mentions the Passover, I should say, is because at this particular time, the city of Jerusalem would be crowded with visitors. Um, the feast of the Passover was one of the three main feasts of Judaism, where every male over the age of 12, within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem, was expected to go to Jerusalem to attend the feast. Now, the Jews wanted to do this. It wasn't just um, those within that 15-mile radius. They, they, they were expected to, but all the others wanted to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And not only from the nation of Israel, but from the other nations of the world where the Jews had uh, uh, been scattered. And so William Barclay, the commentator, says that what was normally a population of about 50,000, the city of Jerusalem, would balloon out to in excess of two million people. So it would be a city teeming with men who had come up for the feast of the Passover. And that leads to the third point here, which is, of course, that it would be an opportunity for many to do business uh, in the outer court. Now, they've come to the tabernacle. That's why they're, they're, they've come to Jerusalem. That's their aim is to come to the temple, I should say, to the outer court. And, and that place would be actually transformed into a kind of marketplace. It would be anything other than a place of uh, reflection and meditation upon God. There would be the, the sound of sheep and cattle. 
there will be the voice of the traders and uh, doing business and trying to do deals and uh, haggling over prices and so on. And uh, it will be anything other than a place of meditation. And so that was the, the second reason. Now, moving on from there, the, the temple then became a money-making machine. This is an important point of this whole passage. It was a money-making machine. People were exploited in the name of religion. For example, uh, they had to bring an animal to be sacrificed. And uh, when they brought that into the outer court, first of all, the animal had to be inspected to see whether it had any spot or blemish. And um, there was a fee that was charged for that. Usually that would be knocked back. It would be deemed as unfit to be offered so that they would be forced to buy one of the animals within the outer court. And of course, those prices were inflated. And so people were being scammed in that way. But secondly, the money changes were there. Now, why were they there? Because the Jews had to offer up a temple tax once a year. And this is the opportunity for them to do it while they've come up to the, the, tapper, the, the, the temple. And um, the problem is that they couldn't just pay this in normal coinage, normal currency, because the coins had an image of Caesar who was worshipped around the empire as God. Or it may even have an image of one of the other pagan gods. So this would be to bring um, idols into the temple area, which of course was blasphemous. And so they had to buy this special a coin that was minted for this purpose of paying the temple tax. And of course, the exchange rate again was highly inflated in the favor of the money changers. And so this was happening. People were being ripped off in the temple area. The, those doing business in the outer court spoiled. The only place where Gentiles could come and worship. It had been built, that is the outer court, as an invitation to the Gentiles to worship the true God, to come up to Jerusalem and to worship the true God. This was the only place in the temple that a Gentile could pray, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. But the whole atmosphere militated against prayer and meditation. Now, of course, Jesus saw this and he responded to it. We read in chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, Jesus is making a very strong statement here. And that brings us to the fourth reason that John mentioned the Passover. And it's this. The Passover feast actually was just one day, but there was another feast that was added to it, which was a seven-day feast, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And during this feast, there was to be no leaven in the house of the Jews as they celebrated this feast. In fact, what they would do, a kind of ceremony, the, the head of the house would hide a piece of leaven somewhere and all the family would take lights that is uh, candles, and search for this piece of leaven to throw it out so that the house had been cleansed and purged. Now, what was happening here is that Jesus, at the time of the Passover, was cleansing his father's house. In fact, this was foretold by the prophet Malachi. 
he said in chapter 3 of Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, that's Jesus, in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, they all knew he was coming, but what they didn't expect was this. He goes on to say, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So you see, they were, they were looking for this deliverer to come to set them free from the Roman oppression. But uh, Malachi said, oh, he's coming. But when he's coming, he's going to cleanse the house of God. He's going to cleanse the temple of God. He's going to purge the leadership, the priests uh, and the Levites. And, 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 and he's coming for that purpose. Now, Jesus did not do this in a flash of anger. You know, we often see uh, scenes or pictures of Jesus cleansing the temple, and it looks like he lost his temper, that he just lost his cool and uh, got out of control and just went in, into a rage. That's not the case, because of course he had to take the time to make a whip of cords, okay? So he had time to carefully think about what he would do. This was no impulsive outburst. He drove the cattle and traders out with a whip and he overthrew their tables. And then this is the statement that he made. He commanded that they not use his father's house as an opportunity to make money out of the people. This is the, the key to the whole thing. This is his father's house. They had hijacked it. They had taken it over for their own ends, their own purpose, which was to make money out of the people. But he said, this is my father says, I'm claiming ownership. It's not your house. It's my father's house. And, and he set it up for a purpose. And that purpose is that it might be a, a house of prayer for all the nations of the world. We read that in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the other three gospel accounts. And uh, he said, you, 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 you've changed the purpose for which the, the, my father has set up this temple. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's quoting from Psalm 69, which is what we call a messianic psalm. And in that psalm, we, we read that um, people would persecute him without a cause. And of course, this was the, the reason, because he was upsetting their little game, their little uh, business that they'd been building. And, and, and so... He reminded them, this is not your house. This is my father's house. Now, let's just think about that for a moment because we need to ask the question, would he say a similar thing today about the church, which is his house? Would, would he say that um, it's been taken and used by leaders in a way that it was never set up to be used? And the answer, of course, is yes. And, and, and very much in the same way, that the leaders of the Jewish people had um, uh, used the house of God back in those days. In other words, to make money out of the people. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But Jesus responds to this accusation. He says, uh, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us 
since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews asked for a sign to authenticate his actions. You're doing this, you're, you're walking around as if you're in authority here. Show us a sign that gives you the right to do these things. Jesus gave one sign, one sign, and that was the resurrection. Do you remember? He also said that on another occasion regarding Jonah. There'd be no sign, but the sign of Jonah, as Jonah was in the, the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. He will be buried for three days and three nights and raised again. That's the sign. The resurrection is the sign. And the incredible thing, the irony is this, that he knew that the religious leaders would attempt to destroy his body. But he also knew they wouldn't succeed because there would be a resurrection. The irony is that the religious leaders themselves would be the means by which this prophecy was fulfilled. He said to them, destroy this temple. He wasn't talking about the temple of the Jews. He was talking about his own body. Destroy this temple. And they would. He knew they would. They would help him to fulfill that prophecy. You do what you can do, which is kill me, and I'll do what only I can do, raise myself back up from the dead. I will raise it up, he said. Notice that. Jesus claimed the power to raise himself from the dead. And he repeated that claim in John chapter 10 and verse 18. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. I've got the power to lay it down and I have the power to raise it up again. So Jesus would raise himself from the dead. And you say, how can that be? Well, we've already seen that Jesus was fully God and fully man. All they could do was to kill the humanity of Jesus, but not his deity. He said, you, 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 you um, destroyed this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. That's the sign. You won't get a greater sign than this, that I am the son of God, that when you've killed me as in my humanity, I'm still alive because I am God and I will raise it up again. Now, the New Testament also claims that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, we read Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then we read that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. In Romans 8, verse 11, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And so we see that the Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the sign. What a mighty sign that is. Then the Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They were thinking that he meant, of course, the Jewish temple. And you, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Even, even the disciples at that time didn't really cotton on and understand the fullness of what Jesus was saying here. And, and, and so, um, you know, what, what, what we see here is this, that Jesus was making a statement that there's a shift going on. We're in a transition time. The temple is no longer going to be this building. It's going to be my body. My body is the temple. God was in Christ 
reconciling the world unto himself. God was not in the temple. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. When did that take place? Well, in two chapters on, in John chapter 4, where we read that Jesus met the woman at the well, the woman in Samaria. He got into a discussion with her and, uh, of course, they didn't speak to each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. They both believed that they were right in the way that they uh, worshipped God and the other was wrong. And, and, and uh, the, the Samaritan woman said this, we believe, we Samaritans believe that on this mountain, God is to be worshipped. But you say in Jerusalem, he is to be worshipped. And then Jesus said this in response, he says, the hour is coming when people will no longer worship at the temple in Samaria or in Jerusalem, but they would worship in spirit and in truth. What an incredible thing. The hour is coming. Do you remember we looked at that, that phrase? Jesus knew and spoke often about his hour. He come to the earth for a specific hour and that hour was to go to the cross. So that is the transition moment. When Jesus went to the cross, the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom, indicating there was a new and living way into the presence of God. And that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we who are in Christ are in the spirit. We are in the truth of Jesus. He's the way, the truth and the life. And we come to the Father through him. That's the only way we can come to the Father. So when Jesus died, the Jewish temple was rendered obsolete and the veil was rent. That's the moment when that transition took place. Now, the body of Jesus is still God's temple today. That's where God meets with his people. What is the body of Christ? Well, we are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, he's talking to the church. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, I know, of course, that individually, we are the temple of God. You, you are, I am, if you're in Christ. Your body is the temple of uh, the living God. And, and, and Paul speaks about that in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. But here he's talking about the church collectively, which was actually being defiled or corrupted by false teachers who were bringing in uh, worldly philosophy and worldly uh, wisdom and trying to mix it in with the word of God and the gospel. And uh, he said, don't do that. Don't bring that into the temple. You'll defile it and, and you'll have God to answer for that. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment, but we're going to just finish off this chapter before we look at the, the application here. It says in the last three verses here in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You see, many knew that what he did was right and they professed their faith in him. They, they saw the miracles. And they put their faith in him. But Jesus, who knew Simon, you remember, we looked at that, and Nathaniel, knows all and would not entrust himself to those whose faith 
was based on miracles. Jesus knows everyone. You remember the moment he saw Simon, he knew what kind of character he was and how others perceived him, a leaf blown here and there and everywhere, so light and so no substance to him. But he said, you, you shall be called Peter. Your name is Simon, but you shall be called Peter, which means a stone. You won't be blown around by the wind. You'll be solid. You'll be stable. And, and, and the moment he saw him, he knew him in, in, instinctively. Same with Nathaniel. When, he, when Samuel was brought to him, he said, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And um, then he went on to say that uh, from here on, you will see heaven opened and angels ascending and descending. Why did he say that? Because he knew that when Nathaniel was over there in, sitting under the fig tree, reading the scriptures, he knew the exact part that he was reading. And that was the account of Jacob when he slept at a place called Bethel and uh, the heaven was open and the angels uh, of God were ascending and descending. And Jesus said, you'll see that happening on the Son of Man. You'll see heaven opened. You'll see greater things than what you've experienced by the revelation that I know you. So the point is this, that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He would not entrust himself to them. Jesus was not phased whether he had a small crowd or a big crowd. He was not impressed whether he was received by a lot of people or rejected by a lot of people. The only thing that motivated Jesus was that he did what his father was asking him to do. What an example that is to all of us, especially those uh, you know, in, in ministry, or we're all in ministry. Don't be put off by what people do, whether they stand with you or walk away from you. What you need to know is that your ministry is from God and you're just working and operating in obedience to him. True believers will believe in Jesus even when there is no sign. Amen. Okay, so let's come to the application then as we, as we come draw towards a close here. The Passover was a busy time for every Jewish family. Okay, that's why it was mentioned. Rigorously searching to ensure their home was not defiled by the presence of leaven. God's house had become defiled. That's the message. It was being used as a house of merchandise and was now a den of thieves. It needed to be purged of the leaven of covetousness. Now, we need to bring this into the, uh, the, the application of what is the house of God today. The house of God today, of course, is the church of Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves the question, when we come to church, when we are the church, when we come together, I mean, to meet as the church, we need to ask this question. Is the church being used, functioning as God intended it to be? Or has it been hijacked and, and used for some ulterior motive? Now, what is the purpose for which God set up the church? I don't want to go too much off, off a tangent here, but there are at least four things that quickly sprung to mind when I asked myself that question. The first thing is this. The church, the Bible says, is the pillar and ground of truth. What that means is this, that God has deposited the truth into the church. He has given us and entrusted to us the truth that we might be a light to a dark world. When we look at the world today, we see that many are confused and don't know what is true. 
what is right and what is wrong. We see it with our politicians. They're making rules and laws in which they call right wrong and wrong right. And if you challenge that, you could find yourself in court. Uh, we find it with the media. The media, people are losing more and more confidence and trust in the media because whichever media outlet it is, it leans to one way or the other. It has an agenda. It's not neutral. And so we're wondering how much of what we're hearing is true and how much there is a bias in, in the way it's being presented. We find it in our courts. We find uh, people that have been violated, uh, abused, um, uh, victims of crime, going to court and not finding justice, coming away without justice and the perpetrators getting let off with just a slap over the wrist and uh, they, they quickly re-offend. And, and that's, that's the way it is in, in, in the world today. People are looking around saying, well, where can we find truth? God says, you'll find it in the church. I've deposited my word in the church and I'm looking to the church to, to shine forth the word of God to society, which is what we're doing today, of course. And, and that's one of the main purposes. Paul said to Timothy, I, I want you, to, you know, I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the pillar and ground of truth. So the first thing we should ask is when we come to church, what place does the word of God really take? Is it really expounded? Is it preached in its context? Is it given its rightful place? Or is it even used out of context for, to, to, to serve another purpose, the purpose of leadership there, to build their agenda and so on? That's the first thing. The second thing that springs to mind from the Word of God is that the house of God is the temple of God in this sense. The Bible says that when we're saved, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is Jesus Christ. And we're, we're growing together in a holy temple. We're living stones that are knit together uh, so that we might become a habitation of God through the Spirit. As I said before, God does indwell every believer. But there's a special way in which he dwells in our midst when we come together. Jesus promised where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. We should never forget that. We should be conscious of that, that the Lord is present amongst us in a mighty way uh, because we are the temple of God, assembled in that sense. Now, the third reason that we, we come together, uh, Paul says, is that we, we come together for mutual edification. He mentions this a few times in the epistles. We come to build one another up. That's why we come together. And that's why it's wrong when people stay away from church, whether it's the institutional church or whether it's a, a church that meets in a home, it doesn't matter. As long as people come together on a regular basis to meet with one another, to build one another, to grow together as, as uh, the, the temple of God, if people stay away on this excuse that I don't get anything out of it, it just shows that they don't understand the nature of the church. The Bible says we don't come necessarily to get, but to give, to edify. We come together and we pray, Lord, bless me, make me a blessing, make me a channel of grace as I meet with my brothers and sisters today. And then the fourth reason, and it's not found in John's gospel, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their account of the cleansing of the temple, which appears at the end of Jesus' ministry, not at the beginning. So some people think that there were two cleansings of the temple. 
Uh, others think it's the same. It doesn't matter. The fact is uh, the temple needed to be cleansed and Jesus did it. And what he said is this, this, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So God has a very strong missions focus. Now, we're not all called to be missionaries. We're not all called to travel to lands and preach the gospel. We're not even called to be evangelists in our own land. But we are called to, to be a, a light to the nations and to support those who do go forth and, and to work together to see that God's heart is to reach out to the nations and to, to bring them to himself. So that's another reason why God has set up his church. And so we should ask ourselves, is that what's happening? Now we're looking at one thing here in particular, and that's what happened in the day of Jesus. And that is that the father's house, his father's house had been hijacked, as it were, and used for the purpose of making money. What happened is that the leaven of covetousness had come in. Now, leaven is um, something which is introduced into a batch of dough. And when it's uh, introduced into the baking, it inflates it, it puffs it up. And, and it operates on a, on a principle of you know, the single cell reproduces itself. The single cell of yeast reproduces. It keeps on reproducing. It's called a budding uh, uh, process. And, and so it just keeps on growing. And the whole thing is puffed up and it becomes corrupted in that way. That's what leaven does. Now, there's two times that Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump two times it's interesting because the church was made of two groups of people one from the jews the other from the gentiles and both of these warnings one of them was to the jews not to bring their leaven into the church the other one was to the gentiles don't bring your leaven in to the church to mix it in you see in those days leaven was often a piece of dough that was left over from uh, the previous baking and introduced into this current baking, as it were. So that's quite a, quite a good picture of what happened in the church and has always happened. People come into the church, but often they, they try to bring in uh, relics of their old life or their old beliefs, even their, their paganism or whatever it is into the church. Now, Last week, we looked at um, how the Jews did that with their traditions, how they made so many rules and, and, and just, you know, Paul says, don't mix the gospel with the law. Uh, you know, anyone that does that, let him be accursed. He was angry with anyone that would do that. But this week, we're going to look, uh, as we finish up now, uh, at, at what was happening with the Gentiles. They brought their um, previous lifestyle into the church. Now, let me say this. God has got patience and love and compassion with anyone that's struggling with sin. Don't, don't ever misunderstand that. God will always, you know, his mercy endures forever. The problem is when people bring that lifestyle into the church, mix it in and say, it's okay to live like this. God, God allows that and God's not phased by it. It's okay. You can carry on living that way without desiring to change or for him to change you 
into his image. We see this in all the epistles of Paul, the warning against that, putting off the old man and putting on the new. We see it in the letters to the Revelation and, uh, churches and so on. Now, we're looking at um, a particular situation here where Paul said that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that was in the case in Corinth where a man there was living in fornication with his father's wife. And the problem was, in fact, Paul does not address the man. He addresses the church because they allowed it. This is the problem. You've introduced it. You've allowed this to come in and treated it as if it's okay. He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Let's have a look at that. And then we'll look at what he went on to say. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I, write, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying here, um, don't tolerate Christians who have no desire to change, but will want to bring that, that immoral lifestyle into the church and, and influence others so that it spreads to the church. And they've got no desire to change, no intention of changing. They're not calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ to, to change them by the power of his word and his spirit. Uh, they, they just feel that this is, can be mixed in with the Christian life. Paul says, don't even keep company with those people. Now he says, I'm not talking about those that practice immorality in the world. That's what we're here for. We're here to reach people, whatever their sin is, to reach them. But when they come into Christ, they need to understand that um, there's a process. We call it sanctification putting off the old and putting on the new uh, and letting Jesus transform us into his glorious image. Now, what we see there right at the end, the very last verse is this. He doesn't just talk about sexual immorality, but he goes on to say the covetous, the extortioners and the idolaters. Don't keep company with people who try to mix in covetousness extortion and idolatry in with the Christian life. So leaven here refers amongst other things to covetousness, extortion and idolatry. When these things exist, there is leaven in the house of God. Now, I want to just address uh, a particular thing, just to pinpoint this today. There is a, a teaching uh, which by which... Um, Leaders are constantly trying to get money from people under the guise that they're giving to God and that when they give to God, God will bless them. You know, whether it's tithing or whether it's sowing the seed or whatever it is. Now, that kind of teaching comes from covetousness. And there's two things wrong with that. First of all, the leadership wants people to give them money so that they can become rich. And when you look at the lifestyle of some of these preachers, they are very rich, some of them. But secondly, they're teaching their people 
to become covetous. They're saying, if you will give, God will give to you. In fact, if you give to him a seed, he will re reward you a hundredfold. Now, I don't know any bank that says, if you deposit $10 with us, the return on that will be $1,000. But that's what these preachers promise. And of course, that creates covetousness in the hearts of the people. And so, you know, the Bible says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But they're teaching people covetousness because they are covetous themselves. Extortion is to take something by force or threat. And so often there's, a, there's a, um, you know, either a, a false promise that brings manipulation, that God's going to bless you and God's going to give you this and God's going to give you that and so on. Or there's a threat that, you know, you'll be cursed. Uh, the devourer will come your way if you do not give to God, which is to us. Uh, and so there's, there's um, extortion there. And of course, money then becomes an idol. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we read covetousness, which is idolatry. A false, covetous preacher teaches others to become covetous and to love the things of this world. There is a problem when the church becomes a money-making machine instead of the pillar and ground of truth. This corruption in the days of Jesus was at the top. The Bible says the Pharisees, and I'm quoting now, were lovers of money. That was their motivation. When spirituality dies amongst the leaders, covetousness fills the vacuum. Now, Paul says, don't keep company with those people. We just read that in 1 Corinthians, but he repeats it here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, there are those who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. It's a means to get rich. Your Christianity is a way to get rich. There are some that teach that. From such, he says, withdraw yourself. Don't keep company with them. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's a stern warning there. And so we have to repeat it. Um, you know, some people say, oh, we, shouldn't, you know, we should just walk in love towards these people. Well, Jesus didn't. He made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple. And Paul was very blunt, very frank in this respect. You know, I, I remember getting a phone call once uh, from someone who was trying to draw me into a scam, a get-rich-quick scheme. And the opening remark in this telephone conversation I had was, would you like more money? And I said, no. <laughs> and that threw them completely because they only had one script. They just assume everyone's going to say, well, yes, of course. He said, what do you mean now? I said, well, I pay all my bills. I've got food and, and, and uh, occasionally I can go on a holiday, uh, have, go to a restaurant now and again. Um, I have everything I need. And, and, and I'm content. I said, contentment is a wonderful blessing. You should try it. The problem is with covetousness is that people will always want more and never come into that wonderful rest of contentment that Jesus gives to us. Now, we'll close with this verse because um, 
Contentment means being happy with having our basic needs met. See, some people will, will, will respond to what I'm saying by this. Uh, see, see, Ken is uh, preaching a poverty doctrine. No, I'm not. I'm not preaching poverty, not at all. I'm preaching against this covetousness that the Bible warns us against and, and that the house of God has been used for. That's what I'm preaching against. But I believe in biblical prosperity, and it's summed up in this verse, and we'll close with this. Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. That's biblical prosperity. God says, I will meet all your needs. How? According to your seed sowing? No, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Everything God wants to do in your life has been paid for. God will meet all your needs. Trust him. He, you know, he looks after the sparrows. He looks after even the flowers of the fields. And, and how much more does he care about you? He will meet all your needs. He's brought you this far by his grace. He will continue to be faithful towards you. But he will also give you an abundance, an overflow, more than what you need. Why is that? So that you can get a bigger house, more cars, you know, a bigger bank account? No so that you may have an abundance for every good work, so that you might share with others. You might minister to the poor and the needy. You might give to charitable works as the Holy Spirit leads you. You might give to missions to help spread the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God wants you to be rich, but never forget this, that true riches are spiritual and they are eternal. God bless you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for this word. We, we see Jesus doing something dramatic, something very radical. And uh, Lord, it's not uh, something which uh, we often associate with Jesus. And yet, Lord, it was necessary because he loved his father's house so much. The zeal that he had for the house of God was such that he had to bring cleansing to the house and bring the house back into divine order. But Father, we thank you that you've given us that wonderful privilege of being the house of God, especially the church, oh God. When we come together, we are the house of God. We pray, Lord, that we'll always keep before us the fact that this is our Father's house. It's not our house to take control and do with it as we want and as we wish, but Lord God, to be obedient into bringing people the word of God, providing an environment where Lord, we might just be, a, a, you know, grow together as living stones and be a habitation of God for the Spirit, where we can build one another up and where we can reach out to the nations with the good news of the gospel. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.